Hello and welcome to My Chaotic Mind, the podcast dealing with the everyday difficulties of balancing adult life and eating disorder recovery. My name is Kaz and I shall be your host in this little corner of the podcasting world. It's important to mention I have no background or training in medicine, nutrition or psychology. I simply have my own very many years of lived experience. That said, if you're sitting comfortably, it's time to come with me through the looking glass. Welcome back to another episode of My Chaotic Mind. I'm very glad to have you joining me today and I'm also very glad to have my dad joining me today. I thought that since my mum had had her turn to talk to you guys, it was only fair that my dad get a shot as well. So, dad, welcome back to the podcast. Hello again. Before I was diagnosed... What did you know about anorexia? I knew very little. And that was because I believed it wasn't something that was affecting me and my immediate family. So I didn't take a great deal of interest in the illness because it appeared not to be relevant. It was something that came across from time to time, distantly, uh, as it were, and my awareness of it was very much limited to uh, this is a problem with eating that some people have, mainly girls and young women, I thought, and I didn't see it as a mental illness that is as complex as I now understand it to be. So basically it was just, you know, people like maybe Karen Carpenter, when she was mentioned in relation to it, that was as much as you yes, really... Yes, Lena Zavaroni was another. Um, very talented, very attractive young women who, for some reason, had fallen into the grip of this illness... Uh, and had died as a result of it. My understanding of it was not much more than a feeling that for some reason they had chosen to starve themselves to death. So you said they're um, young, attractive women. Did you think that men could be affected by anorexia? No, I, I think hardly at all, I would say, because all the publicity that I was coming across was relating to uh, women, was relating to particularly women in the public eye. So it was, it was almost coming across as, as something that was a, a kind of celebrity illness because mm. you only became aware of it when someone who had been in the papers or TV was suffering from it. And it didn't somehow seem to be an illness that impacted on ordinary people. And if it did, it was nearly always girls and young women. One thing I would add is that there was almost a perception 
that it was a kind of middle class illness uh, because of the kind of people that you heard about having it or I've even heard it called the slimmer's disease. There was so little understood about it. In terms of men at that time, I knew of none. And if I were to ask you now if you can name a man who you know has experienced an eating disorder, would you be able to name anyone? I would. And I would do it because I think there are two that I'm thinking of, and I think in both cases they have come out and said that they have an eating disorder. That's um, Gok Wan, the uh, fashion presenter, and Andrew Flintoff, Freddie Flintoff, the cricketer and the TV personality. And what I think that shows is that there is a, a much greater willingness to acknowledge that you have an eating disorder, to acknowledge that you need help and less shame about it. I think it, it took a lot of courage, particularly for men, to come out and be open about what had been seen as a, sorry for saying this, girly illness. Um, and hopefully that has given other men who may be suffering the confidence to feel able to actually acknowledge it and then seek to address it. I think both of those men and indeed other men who have openly spoken about their own struggles with food and body image are really helping to break down the stereotype that I think still exists about the type of person who suffers from an eating disorder. But I think there's still a really long way to go in that respect. How would you say your own relationship with food has been throughout your life? I've always had a very comfortable relationship with food. Um, never had issues with appetite. Um, never attempted to restrict my eating. I, I eat a wide variety of foods and the only things I, I don't eat are things that I don't like the taste of or the texture of. I know as a teenager, uh, I had a very healthy appetite. I, I remember one occasion when your mum and I were uh, going out together. In fact, I think we may even have been engaged and her parents came over to my parents for a meal. We'd been out and my dad saw me uh, coming up the path to the house and he said to the others, quick, fill your plates, the boy's coming. So there was no issue with an appetite and it was, it was well known. But I was always conscious that I wanted to stay within a healthy weight range. But I've never been one for going to the gym. I, I do it by eating sensibly. And that was perhaps one of the reasons that I found it difficult to come to terms with your eating disorder, that I didn't have one. Although looking back genetically, my mother was constantly dieting. Uh, my sister was constantly dieting. I remember once she went on a sponsored diet and gained weight. But it's not something that has happened personally to me. And, and I think for people who don't have issues with eating, 
it makes it all the harder perhaps to understand what it's like for someone who does have the sort of serious issues that you have had. I think it's also important to mention that you do have quite an active lifestyle. Okay, you don't go to the gym, but you do a lot of gardening, you're on your feet a lot, and you were always the one who would take the dogs out for a walk when the weather was bad, which we live in Scotland. When is the weather not bad? Exactly. So how did you find out I had an eating disorder? There were hints of it. Um, I had fears, perhaps, during your teenage years that you were maybe in the early stages of one. I didn't know what the stages were, of course. Um, I knew you had a friend who had an eating disorder. And she was the only one that I had ever personally come across who had had an eating disorder. And I was hoping that you would not be influenced by her to take on the eating disorder as if it was somehow catching. But you got to your 18th birthday and you had a party and it was a lovely party and a lot of friends and family there. And I remember congratulating myself that now you had got to 18 that was it, you would be fine, you would be safe now because you didn't get eating disorders at that age, you got them as a, a younger person. So it was a real shock within a few days of your 18th birthday when your mum came and told me that she had heard you being sick and... We spoke and you did have an eating disorder. So it came as a shock. I'd, I'd had, as I say, the kind of fears beforehand, but there wasn't anything in your behaviour that seriously alarmed me. There, there were hints that I had heard that sometimes your behaviour was a little bit erratic, but... It wasn't anything that made me immediately link that to, oh, she has an eating disorder. I think it's important to mention that the friend I had as a child who had an eating disorder herself, we never talked in any great detail about her illness. So I had no clue what sort of behaviours or anything like that she had. And my knowledge of the illness was extremely limited. So for anyone listening who wonders if maybe her having that illness did plant any seeds in my mind, I can say absolutely not. I couldn't comprehend how somebody could starve themselves or not want to eat when they were hungry. So for me, it was something I honestly never thought I'd be in any danger of developing myself. So would you say that you had any suspicions before you found out for certain that I had an eating disorder? Well, no, as, as I more or less indicated, I had no serious suspicions. Um, there, there were uh, some indications in 
what I've called your erratic behaviour that people brought to my attention. And I thought, well, she's a teenager, what do you expect? And if, if you did spend long periods of time on your own, perhaps, uh, in, in your room, again, she's a teenager, what do you expect? And there's the, the balance that you have to take as a parent between interfering too much and doing too little. And can I say it was easier for me not to want to believe that you had an eating disorder because I could then in my own mind think, well, she's just a, a normal teenager. There's nothing that I need to get um, excited about, worried about or involved in because being at work, I had other things and other issues. And yeah, it's, it's easier to pretend that if you're not coming forward and saying, Dad, I have this problem, um, to pretend there's no problem there. If you had come forward and said, Dad, I've got this problem, then I would certainly have wanted to help. But in those days, it would have been a kind of clumsy sort of help that I would have offered because I knew so little about the illness. What was your reaction or how did you feel when you found out? I think if I could sum it up in one word, it would be shocked because I had believed, because you were 18, that you weren't going to get it anymore. So I was really set back. Uh, with that other parts of that reaction were what have I done wrong what have I done or not done that has caused this to happen so the guilt followed very soon after the realisation that you had an eating disorder and because I knew so little about eating disorders, another reaction was the helplessness. I didn't know how to go about fixing this. And being a dad, I felt my number one responsibility was to fix all the problems within the family. And this was one that I didn't understand. And couldn't fix. I've talked about the sort of clumsy way that I might have gone about it. I was like a rhino charging head on trying to sort this illness out using logic, which doesn't work because it's, it's not a logical illness. It's not one that is controlled by or can be affected by logic. And I found that extraordinarily difficult to come to terms with. I would also add that I wasn't the only one who didn't understand what was going on because the professionals didn't. They all felt this is a physical illness, this isn't a mental illness, and they were treating it as a physical illness. Feed her up was the kind of solution uh, that they were offering. And of course, that doesn't work because it has a temporary benefit in allowing you to gain weight, but does nothing to solve the root causes of the illness. 
So if the professionals didn't understand it, what chance was there of me understanding it? I remember when I told your gran that you had an eating disorder and we had a few minutes discussing what this was and what this wasn't. And your gran thought she was being helpful when she suggested, can you not just shout at her as a solution to make any better? So, yeah, we were all in the dark. I think certainly in the early days, probably 60s, 70s, 80s, there was very much a a response of, well, just make the meat. You're the parent, they're the child. Make them eat. Yes. Um, and I think that's probably where Gran was coming from. Um, yes. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself when you first found out about my illness, what would you want to tell yourself? I'd want to tell myself that, Dad, here's something that you can't fix. And what you need to do is support. It's not your job to cure. It's not within your abilities to cure. So support and find the right ways to go about supporting. I think that going at it like a, a, a bull at a gate uh, was completely the wrong thing to do. But I had no other mechanism at that time for dealing with it. I wanted it fixed and I wanted it fixed now. And going back, I would say, be patient. And I would look at myself nowadays and think, it's good advice, but you still find it very hard to be patient. So I would have had a whole lot of behaviours to unlearn and new and uncomfortable behaviours for me to try to learn if I was going to make a difference then. Well, I, I know we've discussed before that a lack of patience is a family trait which I certainly share. But if it's any comfort, I guess, to you, um, I certainly feel that you are very patient and I don't feel any pressure coming from you trying to fix me. No. I, I did when I was younger, as you've said, but that's, that's definitely something that has diminished over the years. Yes, I, I would agree. I have learned to be more patient, yes. And what message would you give to other dads whose child has a long-term eating disorder? Be patient. <laughs> um, you're not going to be able to fix it. And I would also say, don't take the burden of guilt on yourself. It is not something that you have done or have not done. Almost certainly your responsibility in causing it is very, very slight, if at all. And for dads out there who are facing this, you really have to make haste slowly. It's a long road and 
little steps over a long period of time are likely to be much more effective than trying to solve everything in a week. As a dad with a, at the time, teenage and then early 20s daughter, did you have any reservations about talking to me about my anorexia? Did you see it maybe as something it would be better for mum to deal with, for example? Yes, I, th I think I did. I think I felt uncomfortable. We, we talked in the, the podcast we did last series about expressing a negative feeling, expressing feelings, things that make you uncomfortable. I've always found that very difficult. And I felt that your mum was better. I feel that she still is better at communicating in a constructive and supportive way than I am because there's still that element of me that is the dad, the fixer, that wants to get to the solution rather than exploring the process, if I'm making sense. This may come as a surprise to you. I don't think I've ever told you this before, so why not tell you now on a podcast going out worldwide? Help. <laughs> but when it comes now to talking about issues to do with my eating disorder, I am as comfortable telling you as I am telling mum. Did you know that? No. And I have to say it gives me a lovely warm glow to hear it. I think, well, I know I can pinpoint the moment our relationship changed. And it was when I had the breakup of my one and only sort of serious relationship, which I mentioned in an earlier episode. And when that happened, mum was actually away with her work. So I would normally have turned to her and she wasn't there, but you were. And you supported me through that breakup. And I found I was able to open up to you and talk to you in a way I never had before. Oh. And I didn't feel I needed mum in the same way that I did before I'd, I'd realised I could turn to you for, I guess, emotional support. Yes. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if you ever felt that change, but I thought I should probably mention it to you. I've, I've left it a bit late, 10 years <laughs> too late, but... <laughs> no, I, I can remember what you were talking about, and I, I remember, as well as I remember anything 10 years ago, um the circumstances of me going with you and supporting you. Um, and I, I wouldn't have pinpointed that as a time that, that made a sort of um, shift uh, in our relationship. Um, but now you mention it, I would, looking back, think, yes, I have been more comfortable talking about emotional issues subsequently. There was one book, um, I can't remember its name, but we, we both 
read it, we were given it as part of the family behavioural therapy. And what it did was open my eyes to the kind of reactions there are. Parents, I, I mentioned earlier that I was a bit like a rhino. That is one of the characteristics, the person who tries to solve it by, by going at it. There, there's the ostrich parent who hides their head in the sand and doesn't wish to acknowledge that it exists. And there was a bit of that in me. A third one, I think, is the kangaroo. And that's the kind of person who will hop in and do a bit and then hop out and they'll come in at different extremes and they're sort of all over the place. There's no consistency in the way they, they try to support. And the fourth one, which is what we should all aspire to and which I honestly think I have become more like since going through the rhino phase, is the dolphin, who is there to support, sometimes to lead, to keep you afloat, as it were, and bring you safely to the shore. And they don't judge, they're simply there and they help in whatever way is needed at a particular time. Well, I have noticed that mum is feeding you more fish these days. Uh, yes. I'd like to say a huge thank you to my dad for coming on this podcast and speaking so openly and honestly about things that I think, particularly for him, are quite difficult topics to address. And I certainly hope there are other dads and other men out there who feel some comfort in his words and his experiences, knowing that you are not alone. The book that he couldn't remember the title of is actually the same book that my mum referenced. So once again, there will be a link to that in the show notes. And that book is Skills-Based Learning for Caring for a Loved One with an Eating Disorder, The New Maudsley Method, and that's by Janet Treasure, Grianne Smith, apologies if I am mispronouncing that name, and Anna Crane. So it may well be worth taking a look at that book if you haven't already done so. I'm afraid next episode... It is just going to be me again, but it's going to be a topic which I think will be well worth listening to. I'm just going to leave you with that little teaser. And one final question for my dad to answer. What would you like to say to anyone listening who perhaps doesn't have much paternal support? I think it depends why they don't have that paternal support. If... If they have a parent or, or a dad um, who doesn't want to know, then that's very challenging because it's difficult enough for, going back to my own experience, for you to admit that you have the illness without then having to encounter um, a, a resistance uh, to support. If there is no paternal support there because your dad doesn't know what to do, then I, I think you're looking at two different situations. It's important to find the support 
where you can. And if your dad is prepared to help but doesn't know what to do, I would say ask him to listen to these podcasts and be prepared to put the work in. Dads like me will always be prepared to put the work in. If your dad isn't prepared to put the work in, I don't see why that's any different from having a mum who isn't prepared to put the work in. They're ostriches, if you like. If you need the support, you have to go out, if you have the courage to do it, and find a friend or a professional who is going to give you what you need. Because... It's a lonely place to be and the more support you can get, the better. Ultimately, it may not matter where that support comes from, but I do think if you can have the support of your parents and your close family, that is the best sort of support you can have. Thank you for listening to this episode of my chaotic mind if you have enjoyed it it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to rate review and share it with your friends it's the only way to let the world know this podcast exists if you want to get in touch you can find me on instagram at edpodcast or you can send an email to edpodcast at gmail.com I do hope that you will join me for the next episode, but until then, take care. Bye.